This is Jennifer Polymus from Shalote, North Carolina, and this is Barbecue Central. Happy to have you aboard here for the really big barbecue show. Boing. We cook because we have to, and we grill because we want to. Hit me. Fine. How's it going? You have a great show. I'm a big fan. Boing. So what, what, what seems to be the problem here? This man looks like he's dead, and he's in the, in the crackle. Charbono. It's all about the Charbono, dude. Succulent fish. What? He ate two feet for wiener. Delicious, Lavernius. Shit face. I'm shaking like a dog. Shit peach seeds. <laughs> we have top men working on it right now. And just like that, we are into the second hour. Welcome to the Barbecue Central Show. It's a look back on 2018. If you missed the first hour, where the hell were you? Nevertheless, you can get the replay right on podcast starting around midnight tonight and through Wednesday. Is today Wednesday? No. Today's Tuesday. All through Wednesday. Man. Unbelievable. You get so many days off during the week these last two weeks. It's hard to figure out which day is which. All day tomorrow, which is Wednesday, you can get the first hour. Second hour is up on Thursday. Best moments of the Barbecue Central show in 10 minutes or less will be up on Friday. By the way, if I could give a shout-out to executive producer John Solberg for completing 52 shows last week. For those of you that are math ignorant, that is one full calendar year of original, brand new, best moments of the Barbecue Central show in 10 minutes or less. So so if you're a fan of that show, please send well wishes and notes of thanks to executive producer John Solberg for making that show possible. It has added a nice round amount of content uh, to the feed to gain new listenership here for the overall Barbecue Central show podcast feed. And he's grown quite a little following as far as the best moments are concerned. So it's been a great idea so it was you know great idea on my part but needed somebody to partner with that was going to be able to have the expertise to make the shows to go through and listen to the old shows i mean that's a task right he's got to go through if he doesn't recall every show by memory and i would not think that anybody that listens to the show even the biggest fan knows every moment and every interview and every best part of the show he actually goes back through the shows listens to them and then decides if that is a potential best moment or we can make some segments out of this or that. It's a lot of time invest, so I appreciate the fact that John goes through this each and every week and has them ready to go, so much so that we had picked up a sponsor, which is Crawford's Barbecue and Pit Spritz. So well done, John. Appreciate you helping me with this task and grown it into quite a raging success. Happy New Year to you, my friend. All right, so let's keep the look back of 2018 going. If you missed the first hour, you missed my rant on the youth of America documenting everything and sending it to the Internet. You also missed the conversation that I had in March with Mama Shed, Linda Orison, talking about how she was a professional clown for 10 years. And we also look back a little bit on how the family got into the barbecue business we also looked back on first-timer to the show back in, oh, it was probably uh, March, April time frame, Adrian Miller, Soul Food Scholar. We did talk about Soul Food, which we recapped last hour, but we also learned a lot about 
Barbecue Hall of Fame nominee shortlist maker of the top nine. That was Columbus Hill looking to have Adrian back in 2019 a number of times. I think he's a really good talent, really knowledgeable and bring a lot to the show from a unique perspective, to say the least. So that was your first hour coming up in this hour. We will get to Daniel Vaughn talking about the Barbecue Hall of Fame. We'll talk about Stephen Reichland's rant on hot dogs and boiled hot dog eaters. In turn, we will look at Doug Scheiding, Texas Embedded Correspondent's take on hot dogs himself. Sam, the cooking guy, will make an appearance. Pat LaFrieda, Aaron Franklin, Michael Simon, all set here in the second hour. So let's get right to it. This past July, I was having a conversation with Third Tuesday of the month guest, Stephen Reichland, Barbecue Hall of Famer. We came across the topic of hot dogs, and I had ever so gently fished out the fact that from time to time, on certain occasions, I enjoy a well-placed, boiled hot dog. And boy, did the hot dog talk ensue from there, so much so it ran over multiple weeks. You will hear Stephen Reichland talk on boiled hot dogs and where those people should go. And we'll also learn a little bit about Doug Scheiding, Texas Embedded Correspondence Hot Dog Snobbery. Enjoy. Uh, my favorite hot dog is uh, Hebrew National. Mm-hmm. My favorite way to prepare it uh, is either split down the center, butterfly open, direct grilled until it's almost burnt. Uh, or a new way I've been doing a lot is called hedgehogging the hot dog. That is when you uh, score it in a crosshatch pattern on all sides. So when you grill it over a hot fire, it sort of bursts open like a hedgehog. Uh, the idea behind both methods is you try and expose as much of the meat as possible to the fire so you caramelize all the animal proteins melt out a little bit of the fat uh it's a fantastic way to cook a hot dog Stephen, at the and risk that, by the, way, in the new book uh, project fire at the risk of sounding sacrilegious which i know uh, many times during our conversations i have done unknowingly to you but i think i might knowingly do this would we not want to recommend boiling a hot dog because i have to admit while I never had salmon and I've never done all these great things, I really like a good boiled hot dog. Well, maybe it's because you're from Cleveland or uh, I don't know. Maybe it's uh, <laughs> because you're a millennial or a Gen X or whatever the hell. I am Gen X for sure. Absolutely. Okay, Gen X. No, uh, folks, do not boil your hot dogs. This is an act against nature. Uh, <laughs> hot grill, char the hot dog. Uh, burnt, you know, uh, charred equals flavor. Boiling, I mean... You know, there's a, a tenth circle in, ho- in in hell for people that boil stuff. So. All right. And in, in hell, I am headed in a handbasket. Uh, Stephen, I just mentioned that uh, the, the hot dog eating contest ha- happens on July 4th. Joey Chestnut actually broke the record this year. 74 hot dogs and buns in 10 minutes. I cannot imagine. So if we get up on the stage to go mano e mano with Joey Chestnut, how many hot dogs are you cramming down in 10 minutes? And be honest. I, I am good for uh, two hot dogs max. It's not about quantity. It's about the quality. And uh, I'll leave it to Joey, but I have no interest in that. I think in 10 minutes, uh, going on quantity alone, because I boil hot dogs, so obviously quality is not my forte. I think I could probably get six down. And you could eat six hot dogs. I think I, in, in 10 minutes, yes. And I, I think my question would be, why? I don't know. 
Why does he yeah. eat 74? I mean, I get he makes a lot of money doing it, and he's whatever famous he is. But I think if I had to, I could probably do six in ten minutes. And the first three I could probably do in two minutes because the first hot dog to me, uh, eating hot dogs is the law of diminishing return. The first one is absolutely amazing. And then you're like, that was so good, i got to have the second one. But the second one wasn't as good, and somehow I fool myself into thinking the third one will recapture the first one, and then it's all downhill from there. But I think I could force six down if I had to. Yeah, for me, uh, you know, it's a – well, Michael Pollan, you know, the great food guru said it, and I I really believe it. Eat less meat, but eat better meat. And I try and do that in everything I do. Of course, you know, a hot dog, it's really attention to the details, right? Uh, it's got to be a brioche hot dog bun. You got to brush it with butter. You got to grill it. I mean, that goes without saying, right? You have, a, have to have a naturally fermented uh, sauerkraut to mm-hmm. go with it, right? You have to have really good mustard, like a Dijon style mustard or a Dusseldorfer style mustard. You, you char in that hot dog to get all those rich caramel Maillard flavors. You know, I mean, one or two of those, and uh, and, and and why why overeat? Boiled hot dogs, yes or no, and why, Steve? Okay, real quick, I've got I've got the thing that you need, fellas. This little uh, thing right here, this tool. Dog. I'm I'm all about presentation. Can you <laughs> see the diamond cuts right there? Yep. Now I put this one in the microwave, Greg, Doug, and David, <laughs> just to see you what it would look like. Show you. Wow. Now what? Now what division of hell will I be in for putting a hot dog in the microwave with Stephen Wright? Uh, that's the twelfth circle of hell. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. That's wow. below the board, people. Jeez. I want to hear nines all across the board on this one. <laughs> and then, of course, you put your you put your coleslaw, your relish, and your mustard on it. It's the most delicious food that there is in the world, period. You will choose to microwave a hot dog, or you were just showing I, it for show if purpose? If I don't have time to boil it. Now, you know, I've got a job. I'm, you know, Stephen Reichlin is home. Whoa, 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 whoa. doing anything. You said he you can, will boil a hot dog? Sous, he can sous vide his hot dogs if he wants to. That's fine. But I'll, I'll take a boiled hot dog anytime in a microwave. Uh-huh. I think they're great in a microwave. All right. Do you prefer a grilled hot dog or no? No. Oh, boiled you don't? Or, okay. Boiled or microwave? Wow. Okay, that might be the fifteenth circle of hell. I got to be honest. Boiled or microwave? David Huff, hot dogs? They're delicious. <laughs> Any way you want to serve them, I do prefer mine grilled. Uh, more specifically, I prefer mine over a campfire while I'm sitting outside my RV and I just put a stick in it and roast it over the old campfire the old-fashioned way. I microwave my hot dog. To be honest, actually, my absolute favorite guilty pleasure to eat. As far as a hot dog, I will take a slice of American cheese. I will put it on a flour tortilla. I will put the hot dog on and roll it up like a burrito, and I will microwave it, and that is one of my favorite snacks or lunches to eat. Doug, we'll end with you. Hot dogs. I didn't realize that I am a bar, uh, a hot dog. Well, I'm a barbecue snob, but I'm also a hot dog snob. Big surprise. I have not... <laughs> allowed a hot dog on any of my Traeger grills. And no, certainly if I won't grill them, I definitely won't eat a boiled hot dog. It tastes like nothing. So you need all the contents to have it. The only, only time to have a hot dog is maybe if you're at a baseball game, you can have a hot dog. And that would be the only reason or situation I could picture having a hot dog. Wait, Down wait. here. Let me, let yes. me, let's recap. Very quickly, I just want to make sure I'm understanding yes. this. You are saying 
You don't like hot dogs, period. Period. Whoa! Revelation upon revelations going on here. They have no taste. They have no taste. You have to be kidding me, Doug. Hot dogs? Traeger, remove this man from power immediately. (laughs) Now, now, sausage is a different deal. Sausage is king down here. So, I mean, we have what's called kolaches. The real name is uh, klobasanek which means pig in the blanket. It's Czechoslovakian for pig in the blanket. So that's a like a jalapeno sausage with cheese in a yeast kind of a dough bun. And you have to bite into it to really kind of see what it is. Kalachi has <laughs> jam or cheese or something like that. So we have that. Jam. I will eat that. So the pig in the blanket, I'm in. Because it has jalapeno sausage, not a hot dog. So no Hebrew National, no Nathan's Famous, no Ballpark, nothing like that from a from a hot dog standpoint. Like, did you have a bad experience as a Ute or something like that? The, they don't taste like anything. It's mystery meat. It, does, it doesn't taste like anything. I mean, you At can't sit a- here, Doug, and tell me honestly that the hot dog doesn't taste like anything. It has it a taste to it. It's, like it's meat for crying out loud. It has to have a no. taste. No, no. Well, that's why you have to to uh, put onions, ketchup, brown mustard. No, did, you know, did and you all hear? Of that on there, did so. you hear Nick Solaris go on and on about how the Sabret hot dog is full of garlic? Okay, well, it's a garlic hot dog. It's not a regular <laughs> hot dog. The only person allowed to say a hot dog doesn't taste like anything is Joey Chestnut. Right. <laughs> Correct. All right. Luckily, my friend this weekend did not ask me to cook his kids' hot dogs on my Traeger grill. Would you have told weekend. him no? He, yes, I would have told him no. Are you kidding he me? He hates kids. He hates oh kids. Oh, my God. <laughs> Doug, what are we talking about? You, won't no. put a, you wouldn't put a hot dog on your grill? It's a principal thing. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> this is the best embedded correspondence segment I've ever Doug hates kids and hot dogs. That's like hand in hand, I think. Wow. Well, that, yeah, what, a, yeah. what a meat snob. Holy wow. Cow. I love it. Then I tell you, I go back and forth on what I think is the more shocking response. Is it Stephen Reichlin, a barbecue hall of famer, a famed author, saying that if you eat boiled hot dogs, a tenth a circle of hell is reserved for you? Or the fact that one of my best barbecue buddies and a guy that shows up once a month here on this show, the longest-running embedded correspondent from Texas, Doug Scheiding, won't even put hot dogs on his cookers no matter what. As Steve Ray said, Doug hates kids. Wow. Land-breaking stuff in 2018. We get back to more. Right after I tell you about Traeger Grills, behind every great meal is a great grill, and you will not find a hot dog on Doug's Traeger Grill, I can tell you that. But not just any grill, a great grill, and the Timberline is Traeger's most advanced grill yet. It allows you to grill, smoke, bake, roast, braise, and barbecue like a pro no matter what your level, thanks to the incredible wood fire taste. Seriously, you don't know flavor till you're cooking with it. Traeger Grills use all-natural hardwood pellets as fuel, so you're literally cooking with flavor. From low and slow smoked ribs to a seared steak, even a baked apple pie, Traegers can handle it all. And the Traeger Timberline makes it even easier thanks to the Wi-Fi capability. You can check on your cooks, kick up the temperatures, and set custom cook cycles anytime, anywhere, all right on your phone through the Traeger app. In fact... If I had a brisket on right now, I could check out all those temperatures, internal and in the pit. You can find one at your local Traeger dealer or check them out online at TraegerGrills.com. 
If you want to beef up that barbecue game of yours, check out the Traeger shop classes going from coast to coast, bringing barbecue knowledge and amazing wood-fired food everywhere they go, taught by professional pitmasters. You'll take home all the skills you need to reach barbecue glory. Find a shop class near you and sign up today at TraegerGrills.com. Shop class, that's TraegerGrills.com slash shop class. We continue more with our look back at 2018. How about we talk a little steak and D-bag with Sam the Cooking Guy? Yeah, stick around for that. You're listening to the Barbecue Central Show. The only show giving you a monthly visit from a doctor of barbecue, a man actually named Meathead, the author of a barbecue Bible, bloggers, reviewers, competitors, and manufacturers by the dozens. It's the Barbecue Central Show. Once again, here's your host, Greg Rempe. All right, welcome back. We are looking back at the year 2018 and some of the best moments. Hey, folks that are interested in barbecue and like Smithfield products. Well, next week, I can tell you this. We're going to be unveiling the winners or recipients of the Smithfield Grant Program of 2019. So look forward to that next week. However, if you are a cook and you like Smithfield products, make sure that you head on over to SmokinWithSmithfield.com and sign up for the Committed Cooks Program if you haven't done that yet. Again, that website is Smokin, S-M-O-K-I-N, Smokin with Smithfield. Dot com. All right, in this next look back at 2018 segment, we go back to July and a conversation that I had with Sam the Cooking Guy, or as you might know him, Sam Zion. We got into what I had termed over the course of the summer the purposeful undercooking of steak across America, which I went off of, and then I, I've come back to. I believe that that is actually happening. So much so that last night, New Year's Eve, we were actually, I said I was never going to go to another steakhouse. Of course, I lie all the time. I live in hypocrisy. It's where I love to live. We went to Fleming's Prime Steakhouse last night. Here was the saving grace of the whole evening. I asked the lady when she said, how would you like your steak cook? And you say, you know, medium rare or medium. And she said, okay, that's what, it's going to be a cool red center or a hot pink center. I said, look, late. Can you tell me honestly if the steaks are just going to come out undercooked or not? And then I can better gauge. And she said, yes. Honestly, if you're asking, the steaks will come out under. That way you can make your proper adjustments as far as order temperature. And I said, that is perfect. That's all I'm looking for. So then everybody that was around the table was able to order the proper way. The steaks came out fine. By the way, Fleming's does serve their steaks on plates that are hot, but not 500 degrees hot like Ruth's Chris. They were more in that 200-degree range, which I did have to take into account. So I actually let the steak rest on the plate for an additional five minutes, turning it over every minute to get a little extra cook on it. It was a really great experience. I mean, it wasn't life-changing. It was a good steak, prime steak, really good, but it wasn't life-changing. It's not one of the top 10 steaks I've ever had in my life. But the fact that the server did come to the table in a honest fashion is something that I appreciate more than anything else. However, bringing a thermopen to the restaurant 
is something that Sam, the cooking guy, did not agree with. All right, so let's talk steak just for a couple minutes. I know you had right. steak last night. Yeah, you saw it. Actually, you had this steak yeah. last night for dinner. I don't know if you can see that or not, but that's the steak I you know had the for picture dinner. You're showing. You got the corn, you got the steak all nicely sliced and fanned out. There's a salad up there, top right. I mean, it looks super good. Yes, there is. Very, very good. So Thank I you. have on this show for like for the last month or so, uh, I have been putting in my own research on what I've been calling the purposeful undercooking of steaks across America, potentially across the world, but I have no interest in going anywhere else, but right here in America. And there's some great steakhouses here. Okay, Howard Stern, yeah, keep going. But I really don't. So I've found, and I've also, I'm not the only one that has thought this. I've actually done a few, read a few different articles, I think like from Eater or some reputable food online Go ahead. landscape. That has also supported what I've long thought to be the case. That you would go to a restaurant, you'll order, let's say, medium, and yeah. inevitably that steak is really going to come out medium rare at best. And my assertion for that is they're cooking it under solely for the purpose of not having to throw it away. Because if you I, take, I if, get what you're saying. If you if take they, the steak if over, they screw it up. If you take the steak over, you can't bring it back. If you serve it under. A, you're going. So I think they're working two angles here. I think they put that steak down, undercooked in front of you, and they're hoping that there's going to, well, they know there's a percentage of people that are going to cut into it. They're going to see it's underdone and go, eh, I'm not going to say anything. I'm not confrontational. I'm just going to eat it and I'll be done with it. And they win. Or the second yeah. version is going to be somebody's going to cut into it and go, put it back on for another two, three minutes and bring it up to temperature. They don't have to throw it away. Take it over. You're done with it. You got to throw it away and potentially you're cooking a whole different one or you're crediting back off the bill. So I think restaurants are cooking under, but I wanted to see how much are they undercooking. So I've tasked my embedded correspondents. I got one in Texas, Oklahoma, and Tennessee, plus myself. We've been going around to various levels of steakhouses and ordering steaks. We initially request at one thirty. Okay. Wait a second. This is you're a, telling me this is a research. When the, wait, when the server says, "How would you, how like, would your steak? you like your steak?" You say. 130 degrees. I would like you to cook. Can you cook that steak to 130 degrees? And he temperature? doesn't hit you over the head with a shoe? Why should he? Well, I don't know. Because they're in a world of rare, medium, rare, medium, well. Yeah. Fucked up. I okay. mean. Okay. So if they go. No. Never heard of do anybody that. doing that in my life. No, we can't do that. I say, okay, cook it to medium. Because we all know, according to Meathead's food chart, medium is 135 degrees. Actually, it might be a little higher. So we've been uh so here's what we want. We want yeah, okay. So we say 130 degrees or medium. And then we want to see and then we take our thermopens to the restaurant. Oh, you can't do the This is research, pal. Go ahead. I don't think it's solid research. Okay. I mean, it's 100% solid research. We're asking for something okay. and then hey, we are yes, scientifically checking it. But when the when the thing comes off the stove or yeah. the the broiler, however they oh, the grill, however okay. that restaurant is cooking, uh-huh. and so, it rests for a couple minutes. Okay, are you there? I'm a, stabbing I'm your allotting for thermopen. I'm allotting for five degrees of care. If that steak hits my table at one thirty five, 
You, you say have hit cus- the market. You have hit the mark. I'm allotting for carryover, all that stuff. I'm telling I you. Lo- I, w- I would love to have a private conversation with all of your fans and see how many think you're insane. That and the melty thing. Why? Because okay. I'm exposing how bad restaurants are oh. cooking steaks or how long steak. they're really holding. Well, I tell you, Shouldn't Kelly you care? And I went out for, if Kelly and I went out for dinner Saturday huh? night, the yeah? server said, I, I go, I'd like the bone-in ribeye, please. And they go, sure, sir. Certainly, sir. How would you like that? I go. I'd like it 129 and a half degrees. Now you're now you're being she ridiculous. Would kick me in the nuts. You're being ridiculous. I think if you if you went to a steak restaurant, where's the if you went to George's, Jorge's, Javier's, right? Go ahead. You go, go to ahead. Javier's. You, okay, you, you probably couldn't even throw get it. any Mexican inspired name because this is San no. Diego. By the way, I happen to know Javier's is like one of the most prolific go. restaurants in San Diego, and you know I'm right. Validate it. You know it. Could you get Just into continue. Javier's? No. Just continue. Right. Please continue. So on. go to Javier's, order your steak, bone and ribeye. And go say, ahead. When they say, how would you like that cooked? Say, can you, is it possible for you to take that to 130 degrees internal? And if they look at you like a kook, then you say, you know, you're, you know, you're no, then you say, okay, could you do it? Medium? Do me. Okay. Let me ask. Okay. Let me ask you. All right. Oh, oh, great God of the thermopan. <laughs> Which, by the way, okay, everybody in your audience should have a thermopan. Well, they got at least one. At least one. Yeah. It is the way to go. Yeah. Um, okay. Wait. So, how many times have you done it? Just answer. How many times have you requested steak at a particular temperature? Just answer that first. I've done it one time so far. I'm going to do it another time over the weekend. And. Did they say yes or did they yes. give you the huh? No, she said yes. Okay, and the, and what happened? They they served me 135 degrees. They you were hit cool it. With that. They hit it. I told the lady, I want 130 degrees internal temperature. She said okay, and I said in full disclosure, I'm also going to be producing a thermometer. I'm going to temp that thing. I'm doing some research. Oh, see now, look at what. Oh, now they did extra work on your steak in the back. Why? Because you told them you had a thermopan. Yeah. Well, now they went but back so and what? went, all right. Why does it have nerd, to change? The nerd at table seven <laughs> is doing some crazy <laughs> shit. And now we've got to get your th- chef. Chef, do you have your yeah. thermopan? Yes. All right. Get it out. Yeah, heaven forbid I pay good money for a steak and you should cook it right. Oh, dear Lord. Heaven forbid, I'm not right? Saying God, why don't I just chuck 70 th- bucks out the window? All I'm saying is that you tipped your hand by saying, I will be producing a thermometer, an instant read, the best instant read thermometer made on this planet. Yeah. I'll be temping the steak. All right. Someone, as you bring it to the table, probably as you're putting it down. I won't even wait for it to land on the table. When I go to Red the Steakhouse over the weekend, I'll just order it 130 degrees, but I will not say anything about a thermopin. You think there's going to be that big of a difference? I don't know, but I think if, yeah. Well, yeah, I'm telling you right now. And by the way, yeah, what was that restaurant that you did that 130 degrees thing at? Dante's. Yeah, well, by the way, if you went into Dante's uh, kitchen... Yeah. Right now, yeah. your picture would probably be on the wall <laughs> saying, if this douchebag shows up, make sure. Jeez. 
Damn exactly. Ah, right. Man, journalists get no uh, no props for trying to point and try to, to run with the story. No, but when they no, I'm trying to I, expose the underbelly walk, of the fact that people will not I'm cook saying, steak rights. Walking in saying, can I have 130 degree steak? I'm a little weird, but that's where I like it. <laughs> that's one thing. Yeah. I'd like 130 degree steak, uh, Daniel. By the way, <laughs> I've got eight scientists with <laughs> with scientific equipment and a nuclear thermometer here to check when we're done. In my pants. That's a different thing. Yeah, I'm going to stick this steak with something in my pants. It's going to tell me <laughs> if it's done or not. Um, all right. Well, let's move on from that. And topic, by the way, I, how to yeah. take the joy out of ordering a steak in a restaurant yeah. and eating. Okay. Yeah. Again, research. I'm going to okay. task. I'm going to task you. You're doing this. You should do it for me. You should do it for me too. Right. 130 degrees. Commit. Daniel, I don't want Daniel Vaughn said he'd do it. San Diego to say, "Oh my, Sam the cooking guy it, uh, is a bit of a d, a d bag." So He's worried about the press. Steak at a certain temperature. <laughs> Who does that? And the article would go on to say, "The only time we've heard anybody doing that is a Mister Greg Rampy <laughs> in Cleveland." <laughs> Which is apparently he lives not too far away from that guy that held three girls in his basement. <laughs> it's ten years ago for crying out loud. God, does it matter? Hold a Doesn't couple matter. girls in the basement against their will one time. You can't get over. Is, it, is right. it not a? It wasn't my dad. My dad. Good lord, man. man. You know, as I go back and listen to that, he did say "d bag," but you know what is becoming a little bit old. It used to be you live in Cleveland. Oh, isn't that the place where the river caught on fire? Like back in the 60s or whatever it was. I mean, is that the lamest joke ever still? People still use that joke. Stop that. Okay, please stop that. But the other joke that keeps coming up is the old reference to basements in Cleveland on the west side and how we held girls captive for 10 plus years. Tragic. A terrible event. Not something that you can assimilate with Cleveland regularly. Not something. Andrew, you are not the father. Don't do that. Nobody likes that. Andrew, who is not the father, doesn't like that. I don't like it. That's not a great joke to keep recycling. That was tragedy, okay? Luckily, it ended okay. I mean, it didn't. The mines aren't okay, but geez. Let's not start using that as a joke or keep using that as a joke. All right, Sam? Let's move on as we continue. Daniel Vaughn made a stop through the show earlier in the year, and we talked about the Hall of Fame, and we also talked about how I may or may not get into the Barbecue Hall of Fame. Do you find it at all concerning that only... 25 unique names were submitted by the general public for consideration this year? Well, I mean, I think when, when you're thinking about the biggest of the big, you know, you're just going to have a whole lot of repetition. I was at least heartened to know that there were a whole lot more uh, African-American pitmasters who were on that list for nominations this year. Pretty sad to see that they didn't. none of them ended up making it into the Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that certainly need to look at closer and uh, see if we can't remedy a bit. But no, I guess it's, it's it's not all that surprising to me. So I mean, what does that say about? I mean, I'm I'm the guy that rails against the Hall of Fame for allowing the general public to put names 
uh, in their hands for consideration. But if you're really only getting 25 names, I mean, to me, that seems that there might be some kind of a problem where you're out of all of the whole history of barbecue, you can't come up with more than 25 unique names in a year. I mean, that seems kind of like a troubling issue, I think. Well, I think the other thing, too, is that um, people tend to submit in their own group, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, competition folks are generally just going to submit the names of the competition folks. And commercial barbecue guys, the guys that are running restaurants, uh, are going to do the same thing. Yeah, I mean, I I don't really know what better uh, better way to do it. Like, I can uh, the only thing I can tell you is that of the of the nominees that were considered, um, it was a a good good mix of both um, ethnicity, uh, male and female, and of uh, sort of what what their specialty in barbecue was. Do you get a vote for Hall of Fame? Yeah, I do. Do you know how many times I was nominated? Oh, uh, well, I mean, I think it was just like a technical disqualification just for uh, general attitude. <laughs> Desmond, you believe this son of a bitch? Not surprised. And he's from Ohio originally. Come on. Not surprised. Oh, God, that's unbelievable you would say that right to my face, but I appreciate it. You know, the more I think about it, I don't think I appreciate it that much, Daniel, for you to be that honest. Well, to live in hypocrisy, I guess I do appreciate the fact that you had the testicular fortitude to say it to my face. One of the great moments of 2018, to be sure. And I'm really hoping that in 2019, we have more than 25 unique names that are going to be offered up for the Barbecue Hall of Fame. I mean, that's kind of shocking still as we are in 2019 now. We continue on. With a look back at 2018, LaFrieda, Aaron Franklin, Michael Simon still yet to come. So stay tuned for that. As I had mentioned, we might go a little bit over this year for the first show. I'll talk to you quickly about the longest running sponsor of the show, the Barbecue Guru. You know, they've always believed that outdoor cooking should be easy because it can be, especially with the Monolith Barbecue Guru Edition Grill. If you're in the market for a ceramic cooker, I would ask that you please take a look at this because... Not only does it come with a great amount of accessories that a lot of other ceramic cookers don't, the Monolith is the world's first temperature-controlled smoker with a built-in power draft fan. That means smarter control, greater freedom with automatic temperature control. Also, if you currently have a Barbecue Guru temperature controller, you don't need a new one in order to operate the Monolith. You can take the controller that you have, hook it to the fan that's built in, And away you go. Easily choose your cooking time, temperature. Let the monolith do the work of a sous chef or a barbecue pit master. With minimal effort, you now have oven-like precision at the grill. and can serve the tastiest, juiciest meals each and every time. Longest-running sponsor of the show. Couldn't appreciate that more. BBQGuru.com, the website. If you have any questions, you can give them a call, 800-288-GURU. That's 800-288-GURU. We are back with... Hmm, who should it be? LaFrieda, Aaron Franklin, Michael Simon. It's got to be Aaron Franklin. Stick around, we'll be right back. You're listening to the Barbecue Central Show. Big name interviews. 
advice on cooking brisket and ribs, and the only host willing to share his honest opinion on all things important in the world of barbecue, it's the Barbecue Central Show. Rolling through a look back on 2018, this portion of the show being brought to you by Fireboard. This is a great device. Six different temperatures can be monitored simultaneously. Connect to Wi-Fi for cloud-based monitoring or connect via Bluetooth if you want. If you have Alexa or the Google Assistant in your home, you're in luck because Fireboard is fully integrated with both. Constantly learning new skills as well, so take advantage of that if you have. Find out more by visiting fireboard.com or call 816-945-2232. All the way back in February, do I say he's the most recognizable face still in barbecue? At least name-wise, maybe you don't recognize him, but let's be honest, he does have a unique look with the big Coke-rimmed bottle black glasses, and he's got that very... uh, I would say nerdy look, but I think it's a barbecue nerdy look, and it's a look that he pulls off very well. Hipster, maybe? Is that a better word instead of nerd? No offense to the nerds. It's a term of endearment, believe me. But I had a great interview with Aaron Franklin from Franklin Barbecue. It had been four years since I had spoke with him last. We got to talk about the fire. We got to talk about some other things as it relates to the restaurant, too. And we talked about the term... Pitmaster, right? Yeah. So if you didn't hear the first interview back in February, here's a little best of as it relates to 2018. Enjoy. But when we talk about barbecue, this name, I think, has risen to, I'm going to make up a word, synonymity of barbecue that, of course, is the proprietor of Franklin Barbecue, Aaron Franklin, joining me here on the show. Is that a good word to make up, Aaron, do you think? Yeah, I think it's a great word. I've totally never heard that before. I'm looking it up on thesaurus.com right now. I believe you will not find it. <laughs> uh, one of my fans says, in, inevitably, in each show, there's like two or three rampyisms that I really want to use a big word. I'm using kind of the right word, and then I throw some stuff in at the end that really just perverts it in a very bad way. And that's... You know, I think it's great. Yeah, rampyisms. I, uh, I've, I've been doing that for years. <laughs> I've been using rampyisms forever. <laughs> a big fan. Thank you. I'm not sure if you recall, Aaron, but it was almost four years ago since the last time you were on. It was actually April Fool's Day of 2014, one of the most downloaded shows, by the way, if you're keeping track. And, um, and you're not you're not kidding. No, I'm not. Um, <laughs> Franklin Barbecue had been voted number one by Barbecue Texas Monthly. A new list revealed last year that you guys had dropped all the way down to <clears throat> number two. Probably life-altering, I'm sure. <laughs> How are you and the rest of the gang able to gird the loins after you found out that terrible news? You know, it's uh, it's actually a little bit uh, better being number two than it is being number one. Um, you know, it, it's kind of nice not having a target on your back all the time. <laughs> so we're we're pretty excited about it. You know, Aaron, let's track back. You know, even four years ago, Franklin Barbecue was known as it is today for incredibly great barbecue, but... There was this line that one typically had to wade in, and if you fast forward now to 2018, and perhaps incredibly, there is still a line one needs to get through before they are rewarded by the barbecue culinary uh, treats. Would you say that, given the history, 
you would expect there to be some semblance of a line as long as you keep the store open at this point, or is there just no telling when it might dry up? There's really no telling. I mean, we tried to do like a double dare thing out there. We've tried to shoot people away. We've tried to close on Mondays, but man, they keep showing up. It turns out they really like the food. So I, I hopefully for the unforeseeable future, people keep showing up. Is it a thing that you think you would get some kind of a heads up on prior to there not being a line? In other words, as you look at business and at how it relates to the store, are you planning each day in accordance with what you saw the day before and the day before, or I guess, or in other words, well, is past performance indicative of future behavior? Not really. I mean, we really just cook as much food as we can. And as much as we're comfortable cooking, which is, you know, under normal circumstances without, you know, had a fire in the smokehouse and all that kind of stuff, it's about 120 briskets a day. So that's typically what we go through. If we were to ever suspect that people might start or might stop showing up, um, that's probably because we would notice maybe the food's not that good. Maybe we're not paying attention to it. Maybe we're just don't love it anymore. You know, I mean, I, I if... You know, I think uh, looking at ourselves would be a, a much better indicator of uh, if people are going to keep showing up or not. Aaron, you said a couple minutes ago that being number two is better than being number one from a target standpoint. And I think I asked you four years ago, and, and I'm wondering if it's any different four years later. Is, is there any internal pressure that you guys put on yourselves or that you're thinking about, or you and Stacy, as the owners of the restaurant, that here's this great built-in line and customer base and great word of mouth and all that stuff do you ever do you ever worry about it going away at all secretly uh well no not really i mean the 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 whole reason why people show up is because we try super duper hard mm -hmm. you know we make the best food we we possibly can and we make it consistently the best food we possibly can every day and i think as long as that part doesn't slip we, we should be in the clear aaron franklin joining me here on the show Aaron, let's take a trip back, if we could, to August 26th of last year, the day of the fire. You feel oh, the call. Oh, familiar. Hey, yeah, you know, yeah. let's let's go back to the fun times, right? Um, you feel the call yeah, right. from your general manager around 5.30 in the morning. I have to imagine as you're driving there, you could only be building up certain scenarios in your head. So once you get on scene, how does it compare or contrast to what you were building up in your mind? Well, I'll I'll start by saying, in my head, I'd been kind of expecting, you know, like, one day something bad's going to happen. You never know. Hopefully not. But you always kind of mentally prepare yourself for these kinds of things. I've said it a bunch, but, you know, if you ran a business that had seven 688-degree fires and a 1,000 square foot of uh, wood-framed pleasure, I think uh, you'd be kidding yourself if you thought you're probably never going to have a fire. So really when I got the call, certainly mentally prepared for it, didn't freak out or anything, Put my shoes on, took a minute to collect myself. I was like, all right. Got in the truck, started driving to the restaurant. Uh, but it was a lot bigger and worse than I thought it would be. Um, I kind of suspected, like, oh, you know, we won't have ribs today. You know, the guy that was cooking put it out with a fire extinguisher. It's just kind of smoky. No big deal. We can clean up. Maybe we'll open a little bit late. We should be fine. You know, we're about a block off of I-35 here in Austin. So when I pulled up to 12th Street, which is a block over, uh, from 11th Street, where we're actually located, I could see the light kind of shining over the building, and it was kind of, it was, you know, it was the morning that Harvey, the hurricane was blowing through town. So uh, I could see through the rain and stuff like that. The light was kind of reflecting off the rain and stuff. That was kind of my, uh, my moment. It was like, ooh, that's a whole lot worse than I thought it was going to be. But really, you know, I mean, all in all, super no big deal. I think uh, the fact that we were prepared to face such a thing has really been pretty helpful. I mean, you know, we've got great insurance, we had saved up plenty of money. 
and uh, had a good game plan right off the bat to get working on it. So nobody got hurt. No, no harm, no foul. Aaron, when you talk about being in a position of, as you said, 700-degree fires in a wood frame, kind of small, confined area, and I read somewhere in an article people were asking about safeguards, if you will, and sprinkler systems, and you had astutely said, well, I mean, they're going to go off like two, three times a week. I mean, just kind of figure it out for yourself. Are there any safeguards that you can put in place when you're dealing in this kind of a business model, or is it just, as you said, wait for the inevitable? You could construct it out of uh, non-combustible <laughs> materials, for sure, like steel. That would be handy. For sure. Um, but, you know, I mean, we have, like, fire breaks on the walls. We have fire, you know, one-hour firewalls on uh, two sides of the smokehouse. We've got steel, you know, that kind of, like, curves up from the wall, that curves up, you know, from the floor to the wall and stuff like that. So, yeah, they're definitely safeguards. The one thing that I didn't calculate for the smokehouse was, uh, was the wind. Uh, it doesn't really get very windy here in Austin, so when we were faced with a hurricane, I hadn't really built any kind of, like, storm shutters or any way to, like, close off the smokehouse to, to the wind. So that was really what the problem was. Aaron, to me, you seem like a pretty progressive guy, um, well, maybe freewheeling to a certain degree. Was there ever a conversation? <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, was there ever a conversation between you and Stacy saying, hey, you know, we've had this fire We've seen a great amount of success over the course of, you know, what really started out as just being a trailer barbecue operation growing into what it is. Let's take this time and, and reconsider, do we want to do something else completely? Do we want to get away from barbecue and open up a ramen noodle shop or start woodworking or, or whatever? Did you ever consider dropping it at that point? No, not, not an option at all. You know, too many people love, love eating there. Too many people work there that rely on that. We have such an extended family. And, uh, you know, we're not just like restaurant people that get picked like a barbecue place like, oh, this people seem to like this stuff. Let's let's open up a barbecue joint. We open up a barbecue joint because I generally love cooking barbecue. And uh, so really, I, I don't know what else I would do at this point. It would not be cool to not reopen. So it was kind of a no brainer. Do you ever see a point of getting out of the restaurant business? Uh, no, not really. I mean, I'm, I'm sure one day. I mean, this this business is exhausting, uh, especially barbecue, <laughs> yeah. especially people showing up to work at midnight, work until noon the next day. And, you know, it never stops. It just we cook six and a half days a week, 24 hours a day. So, yeah, I'm sure eventually we'll get tired. I don't know what the uh, what the game plan is for getting out of it, but maybe we'll keep it going on forever. Maybe we'll sell it to somebody that's worked there for a long time. How many people are gamefully employed at Franklin Barbecue right now? We've got 31 people. 31? Yep. Wow. And how many are in the back or ones that you would, uh, is trust the right word, but ones that you rely on as far as the cooking is concerned? Well, there are six cooks. Uh, there are about four prep guys, two dishwashers, and pretty much everybody else is front of the house just to take care of that line out there. Cut meat during lunch and do all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I think, I'd say there are about six or seven actual cooks. From a customer's standpoint... I would imagine that the expectation is that if they show up, that being the customer for lunch at Franklin Barbecue, they're going to be able to catch a gander of that guy they hear so much about and who they're paying money to eat barbecue. Do you feel like you need to be out there to make sure that uh, they're getting that whole experience? Not only are they getting the great barbecue, but they're also able to, to see you in some form or fashion. Yeah, they, you know, that's a really good question. Um, I don't think anyone's ever asked that before. I do feel obligated to be there during lunches. I mean, Sunday is really not the only day that I really try hard to not be there uh, just so I can spend time with the family. We have a four-year-old, which last time, 
um, I was on your show. We were just about to have that four-year-old. Yeah, so, congratulations. Yeah, a lot of stuff's changed in the last four years. You know, we're keeping her alive, so she's, she's doing pretty good. I try to be there every day during lunch. Sometimes I'll cut out a little early, go run some errands. I usually get there pretty early in the morning and I check in with everybody, but I'm also there, you know, watching the guys that are cutting the lunch, hanging out with the cooks in the back. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty darn hands-on every day. How important is it from a job hiring perspective for that person to maybe not say they have aspirations of opening up their own barbecue place if they're interviewing with you? You know, really what it comes down to, I think, in that aspect is um, if somebody is good enough to work at our place, they're probably wanting to open up their own place. You know, I'm not necessarily looking for somebody that wants to work, you know, like work at a cash register for the next 10 years. I want someone with aspirations to do something. I want somebody with kind of some get up and go, you know. Aaron, what's the most common mistake people make when they're building fires in an offset pit or... How can one go about building and maintaining a fire properly? I think a lot of people try to make a fire last a long time. Really, the way that I look at fires is that you can't make a piece of firewood do what it doesn't naturally want to do. You know, if you have a large coal bed, you can put down a piece of wood. And sure, it's going to smolder for a minute before it combusts. But once it's actually on fire, you need to be able to guide that fire to do what you want it to do. You can't, you know, like choke off a door took off the air supply and be like, oh, it stays hot for four hours. It's like, well, you know, the flavors coming out of that terrible fire probably aren't going to be very good. So I think it's just kind of taking that into consideration. Always give a fire what it needs and try to, I try to use wood selection more for flavors or styles of fire than anything, you know, like something that's maybe a little drier than you want it to be. Maybe it's a little greener. Maybe you pick out the right piece of wood um, and to properly size firewood too, depending on the size of your cooker. Would you recommend that, uh, for instance, I have a, a 36-inch Langham now. This is a different flow than you're used to because you have more of that traditional mm-hmm. flow. Lang's obviously the uh, reverse flow. But would you be opposed or unopposed to, like, uh, leaving the firebox door half open versus running the dampers or those pinwheels in order to control uh, airflow? I typically don't like the use of dampers. It depends on the airflow. The kind of the... A rule of thumb for, for fires for me is that you can't really push air on a fire. You have to pull it. And that's where the smokestack comes in kind of handy. It was like, what yeah, what kind of vacuum is, does this barbecue pit have? From that point, it's up to you to decide what that fire's doing while it's in the cooker. You know, if it pulls hard. So for me, I usually just close off all the dampers and try to only have the one variable, especially like a lane. I mean, there's like, gosh, I don't, who knows, how many dampers does, does yours have? It has, like four or five? It has, like no, no, it has two on either side. Okay. So... You know, I would shut those down and just use that one door. That way I'm not messing with, like, variables, and I don't have a smokestack that's choked off. Try to leave that as wide open as possible. So, yeah, it depends. But, I mean, really, I mean, you can cook on anything. and uh, If you can get it hot, you can cook on it, and just kind of the more you do it, the better you get at it. Aaron, the last time you were on the show, I talked to you about the terms barbecue and grilling. Tonight, I want to ask you about the term pitmaster. Like, to me, I'm like, we should just get rid of that word altogether because it just invites all sorts of different dynamics and definitions and ideas and thoughts, which is great for a talk show, right? I mean, it gives you endless quantity of information and things to talk on. Yeah, you got something to talk about. Absolutely. So how do you look at that term pitmaster? Do you define it or or what does it mean to you? I think I kind of agree with you. I think it's pretty silly. I mean, I, I would never want to call myself a master. If you think you're a master, you probably have a lot to learn. You clearly haven't messed it up enough yet. <laughs> I think, yeah, I don't know. I just feel kind of funny about Pitmaster. I don't let anyone, 
at our restaurant say that, you know, like I would never call myself a pit master. I think you're just kind of setting yourself up for failure. Do you feel comfortable if I said that you are kind of the face of barbecue and have been over the last half decade or so at least? Well, that might freak me out just a little bit. <laughs> really? I mean, you, I mean like, as I was just saying, I mean, you seem so genuine and so nice and that you want to kind of go out of your way to help and in, in any way possible uh, and then still be on top of the game. Uh, I, I have to believe that if I say Aaron Franklin and you know anything about barbecue, everybody knows you, and yet you still seem to be the most one of the most down-to-earth guys. And there is a lot of ego in barbecue, as I'm sure you're well aware of these days, especially over the last handful of years. So I guess it's, to me, just kind of confessing that uh, it's nice to be around somebody that has not only seen the level of success that you have, but is still kind of a regular dude. Well, thanks. I uh, I certainly just go to work like everybody else does. My work is a little bit different maybe than some people, but you can only be who you are. I'm not, not trying to do anything special here. Just kind of doing what makes us happy. I'm still a little bit surprised that in all the interviews he's ever done, especially recently given the fire and all that stuff and the rebuild and the Phoenix rising from the proverbial barbecue ashes, that nobody has ever asked him that if you stand in line or, or does he feel a pressure to be there because people are waiting in line and people probably do expect or hope that they catch a glimpse of him. Can't believe nobody's asked that before. That was February of 2018. As I had mentioned, lots of great things happening this past February. We move to November. November was a really good month for the show as well. We'll actually end the show on two November segments. The first up is Pat LaFrieda. He was on a total of three times, all within maybe a quarter span, maybe less than that. The first time was good. The second time, we were marred a little bit by phone connections. The third time, as uh, a guy on Twitter named Sirius J said, is the definitive Pat LaFrieda interview. I took the best 12 minutes out of that uh, 30 or 40-minute interview and have it queued up for you here on the best moments of 2018. Here's Pat LaFrieda. From November, talking a little ballpark food, talking a lot about dry aging, and talking about gimmick cuts and more. Yo, Greg. We did it this time, Pets. Victory! We're here. I was actually an hour early. I thought it was 9.15. Better early than late, I guess, right? Uh, 100%. All right. Happy to be back with you, pal. You know, little known fact, Pat, I was born and raised upstate New York, Saratoga Springs to be exact. When we were born, uh, my dad's parents, huge Yankees fans. So we were first baptized Yankees fans, then baptized Catholic, of course, as it goes with all great Yankee uh, families. Um, Are you a Yankees fan or a Mets fan? Grew up a Yankees fan and then became a Mets fan. But what the Mets did at City Field is very impressive when it comes to food. So to be able to get, I think it's the first ballpark to get food the way it should it should be gotten. When you expect when you spend that much money and time and effort to get to a game, the idea that you can get fresh sushi or a high end steak in a steakhouse at the ballpark instead of a dirty water dog or a pret- or, you know a stale pretzel is something that the, that the Mets or and or City Field really understood and got. Now I see, even in a bad season, you'll have millennials go there just for the food scene. It's it's really amazing. 
like, can you point your finger to where you thought that transition took place? Because I did see that similarly here at Progressive Field where, I mean, and I grew up watching the Indians when we moved out of New York here in, you know, like seventh grade or whatever in the old Cleveland Stadium. That thing was a hole and who knows what the hell was leaking on top of you sitting underneath the overhang. (laughs) But it was exactly what you said, the dirty water dog. Of course, here in Cleveland, it was Burtman's Ballpark Mustard, which is that gray mustard that a lot of people that aren't from here don't really realize or understand why we eat it. I have seen through stadium renovations that, you know, let's bring in the craft beer scene. Let's bring in a a higher-end food scene. Do you or can you put a finger on when you saw that change take place? I first saw it when... City Field was built, what, eight years now, I believe? So the Wilpon family that owned a majority stake in the Mets are also foodies. I remember my first meetings with them about supplying the the ballpark with meat, and they had a passion for food in a large format arena where normally there's no stress put on the food. It's usually overpriced, terrible food. Yep. And the idea, so that's where I first saw it, and I see it starting to spread. When you go to some of those higher-end meat purveyor websites, some of them are shipping you stuff that is rock-solid frozen, and you know they want you to thaw it out here for a couple days. When I got your shipment, please correct me if I'm ignorant here, but am I close enough to where you ship? Me the meat because I'm in Cleveland, you know, and from you know New Jersey, New York City, I'm not that far away, so it can come refrigerated. Or whether I'm getting it in Cleveland, or whether you're shipping all the way out to the West Coast, I'm going to get it the same way no matter what. You're going to get it the same way no matter what. Mm-hmm. We only send and ship meat fresh overnight, so next day delivery um, in gel packs, and we cut the meat fresh when it's ordered. We don't ever send or sell anything that's frozen. So it's not a terrible thing to freeze meat. We need to preserve it somehow. The general public does, I should say. But it definitely loses its essence, and it loses a lot of of flavor in that defrost mode. So uh, when you buy meat and it comes to you shipped and it's rock-solid frozen, like you said, that's usually at minus 10 degrees with dry ice on it. And that business model works for certain online meat sales, but it doesn't work for the LaFrida family. So we would never sell that product. And that product is purchased and processed, meaning it's portioned and and vacuum packaged and put back into the freezer all throughout the year when the markets are the lowest so that they have a stagnant price. They could really price fix in on an item. For us, we would rather buy meat at market value from small farms around around the country, cut it fresh, and ship it out fresh. I don't know of any other online service that does that, but it's something that we pride ourselves on. Pat, let's take a look at your sales and what the most popular cuts or cut of meat that you're currently selling, and does it differ between what the restaurants are ordering from you and what the consumers are ordering from you? I would say it's very close. The consumers and the restaurants are really ordering the same cuts. And that's what's great about the American beef industry is that it's the most efficient and greatest example of capitalism that I could ever imagine. Whereas in my father's generation or my grandfather's generation, if they wanted to sell two strip steaks, they needed to sell two ribeyes and two chucks and two inside rounds. The industry is not run that way anymore. I'm able to buy the parts that I need 
And depending on the demand around the country and internationally for those different parts, that will determine the price structure of what each cut costs. And that's how the market changes. Unfortunately, for barbecuers and brisket, our chopped beef blend, which has a lot of brisket in it, has really increased the price, as you've seen over the last 10 years. Sure. Uh, brisket was traditionally very inexpensive, and because of the amount that we use, I think we're the largest brisket user in the country. Just because of that, it's changed the whole landscape of the pricing structure of beef. So are the most popular cuts the ribeyes or the rib steak type stuff? Yes, to get back to your sorry, to get back to your question, the most popular steaks that restaurants will buy and they'll buy these cuts because their consumers are comfortable ordering these cuts. So you have to imagine chefs are putting out cuts of beef or any type of meat that their consumers are gonna order are basically the middle meats. So the ribeyes, the New York strips, if it's a bone in ribeye, the really long bone would be the tomahawk. If it's a shorter bone and it's French, it's a, it's a cowboy steak. For New York strips, I prefer it bone-in, and that's most commonly ordered bone-in or boneless for the New York strips. Then you have your economy cuts, which I see more and more restaurants ordering and consumers ordering. I think the most common of those would be the butcher steak, which is a hanger steak, and flat irons. It's a great steak that tastes more like a New York strip than any other cut in the animal. In a blind taste test, it's nearly impossible to tell the difference between the two. But in your wallet, it's about one quarter of the price of a New York strip. The tomahawk steak, by the way, you sent me two, and and the first one that I had was absolutely delicious. But to be a complete shithead, let me talk to you about this tomahawk steak. (laughs) So it's a ribeye. Right? I mean, it looks like a ribeye. It feels like a ribeye. The bone's in there, uh, you know, all along that one side, just like it should be. Except here's this whole bone that sticks out. I can't eat that bone. Uh, It weighs something. It screams, presentation-wise, this is cool. But then the frugal gourmet in me screams, what the hell is that for? I don't need that. That's absolutely (laughs) ridiculous. So then the word gimmick comes up to me. So where do you fall out on why tomahawks are so popular right now. And, I mean, in essence, are you paying a little bit more for stuff that you aren't eating? You're not paying more, I would say, for a tomahawk. But you said it. You said the word presentation. Sure. And in in a world where taking photos of every dish that comes out in every restaurant, when you sit in a restaurant that serves tomahawk steaks and a plated cooked tomahawk goes by, you can just watch everyone's eyes follow that plate. So that presentation, something that I would say, if you asked me that question 10 years ago, I would say, yeah, that, that's gimmicky. <laughs> but now that plate, that plate presentation is unique and necessary. So there's no waste of meat, but there is a better way to eat a tomahawk. As in the ones I sent you, the bone is clean. If we would have left the spare rib meat on, now, when you're done eating the ribeye portion, you can grab that bone and gnaw on that bone for a bit, and it's delicious. Mm. Who doesn't like beef back ribs? That's what we cut out of that. And those don't go to waste, by the way. We call those beef fingers, and we sell those to uh, – you can braise those. Those are delicious. Uh, again, it's, it's beef sparing meat. So nothing goes to waste. But for that plate presentation and for that restaurant that 
you know, they want people to Instagram their, their, their dishes as they come out. It's a little easier to do with a tomahawk than it is to do with a boneless ribeye. Pat, do you see or, or do you know what percentage of your steak sales is specifically related to dry age versus uh, just a fresh steak? 75% of all of our steaks from the middle meat cuts, so that's the ribeyes and the strips, porterhouses, tomahawks, all of those middle meats, 75% of those are dry aged. Really? Yep. Wow. And it's the reason that we have to build a new facility. One of the main reasons is because of the dry age room. We're out of space. Our new facility will have a dry age room four times the size of what we currently have. And we're not closing facility A to move into facility B. We're going to run them in concert. So we have a backup facility and we'll use facility A as more of a cross dock. Lightning hits or something happens to one facility, we're still able to have a second facility to uh, produce product from and supply our restaurants. Yeah, wow. 75% was certainly uh, uh, not a percentage. That, I, that, that seems incredible to me, which is, I guess, where things are trending uh, right now. Yeah, and I would have told you, you know, 10 years ago would have been about 10%. But that's where the um, beef lovers have gone. Dry-aged beef, if you don't have dry-aged beef to offer as a meat purveyor, uh, you're kind of out of business. I was just going to say, you want to play a lightning round real quick? Go ahead. There we go. Lightning round with Pat LaFrieda. I'm going to give you a, uh, a choice or a yes or no kind of a thing, and just right off the top of the head, you give me an answer. Here we go. Bobby Flay or Alton Brown? Bobby. Lump or briquette? Briquette. Reverse sear or normal sear? Reverse. Yes or no? Searing seals in the juices. No. Let it rest? Or let's eat. Let it rest. Pellet or offset? Pellet. Spatchcock or beer can chicken? Beer can. Sweet or savory? Both. Open pit or sweet (laughs) baby rays? Open pit. Really? Come on, Pat. What are you talking about? Yeah. Uh, Sazerac or old-fashioned? Old-fashioned. 25-year-old pappy, life-changing or bank-changing? Say neither. Neither? Really? I, I'm doing it's going to break the bank, but it's not going to change my life either. <laughs> Pat, really appreciate the time tonight. Thanks so much for doing it. Thanks for having me, pal. Really appreciate being on the show. You got it. There he is, Pat LaFrieda. You heard him say 75% of meat business is dry-aged in some form or fashion. 75%. To me, that's still a staggering percentage. We continue on with the look back at 2018. First up, let me do a quick read. Finish that off. As I had mentioned, going a little later than normal, but that's all right. We got to look back at some of the best moments of 2018, everybody. I'll talk to you quickly about Southside Market and Barbecue. Attention anyone who loves sausage and loves barbecue. Established in 1882, Southside is one of the oldest barbecue joints in Texas. They've been owned and operated by the same family for three generations. Famous for the original beef sausage, coarse ground, and a natural pork casing. Have you ever heard of hot guts? That's what hot guts are. Plus, they make authentic Central Texas barbecue as well to scent. All meats, including the prime briskets, are smoked low and slow for many hours over real Texas post oak wood. They ship nationwide via the online store, southsidemarket.com. They also ship fresh and smoked sausages nationwide. I should know that. I sent them to my embedded correspondents. Delish. 
Shipping customers can choose to order now and ship later. Include a custom gift note mailed to multiple addresses without additional charges. I also did that. All shipped items vacuum sealed to ensure freshness and ease of preparation for the customer. Shipped with dry ice to ensure complete freshness upon arrival. All meats are processed in the on-site USDA inspected facility. On-site meat markets for fresh and smoked products. Custom orders welcome as well. Two restaurants for you to try if you're around. Elgin, Texas since 1882 and Bastrop, Texas since 2014. Grocery distribution through Texas and many surrounding states as well. Here's the bonus, which a lot of you are starting to take advantage of. Finally, 10% off the entire order when you go online, southsidemarket.com, and use promo code BBQCentral. One word, lowercase, BBQCentral, that's 10% off. I saved a bunch of money when I shipped my sausages to the embedded correspondence as a Christmas gift or a holiday gift. Southsidemarket.com. 10% off the order with code BBQ Central. Very easy. We are back to wrap up the look at 2018 with a Michael Simon interview. Stick around. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Barbecue Central Show. Whole Packers. Full racks, legs and thighs, injecting butts. If you've never heard this before, you might think you've found the best triple X show ever. Let's get back to the most homoerotic host out there today, Craig Rimpy. All right, welcome back. We are taking a final look back at 2018. New shows in 2019 loading up as we speak. We're already booking into February and March. Looking to get some new monthly guests. We might be losing some monthly guests. We might be moving around some segment slots. Always trying to make the show better, fresh, involved, timely, live, local, and late-breaking. All right, the last segment as we look back on 2018 is what my friend Doug Tratner, who's the Cleveland scene food writer here in Cleveland for the last number of years, 10, 15 years, or however long it's been. Doug, I'm sorry, I don't remember exactly. The side benefit, of course, is that he invites me to go to barbecue restaurants with him, and he, I guess, leans on me for my expert opinion, which I'm always happy to give to him. So, uh, Doug, always appreciate the time that we spend together throughout the course of a calendar year. But he had termed Michael Simon when he did the first write-up on me a couple summers ago, which uh, really helped the show move along here locally. He termed the guy Michael Simon as the white whale of the show, my Moby Dick, if you will. And it took two years of trying through social media, and I kind of tried to leverage Doug Tratner into asking him to come on the show, but he was a little unrelenting about that. So, however it happened, and I truly believe that it was all timing and kismet, I'm not a believer in fate, but I am a believer that a guy from Pittsburgh and a guy from Cleveland can put it together. I got to give a mad shout out, which I hate to say. To Doug Durda, who was in the Pittsburgh International Airport, saw a Michael Simon property, took a picture, tweeted it out, and then it really all enveloped from there. So much so that I met with Michael Simon in November, as I mentioned, November, a good month for the show, live in person at Mabel's Barbecue. It went a little something like this. (laughs) 
first thing, let's talk a, a little bit about social media, right. because in essence, this is exactly how this interview happens. I've been interacting with you through Twitter for any number of years yeah, now saying, years. hey, I'm this Cleveland guy, you know, let's do an interview, blah, 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 I'm barbecue, you're barbecue. And through another guy in Pittsburgh who just happened to be at your location in the Pittsburgh airport mm-hmm. said, hey, what about your buddy? I'm like, eh, I might like him more than me. All of a sudden, here we are talking in your restaurant. So right. how do you use social media, I guess, both personally and professionally, or because of who you are, are you able to delineate personal social media and business social media? That's a good question. I, you know, I probably um, use social media, I guess, different than a lot of people. I, I use it more personally than I do professionally, but because professionally I'm a chef, it, it, it allows me to answer a lot of questions to a larger audience than I would be able to do just from customers coming into the restaurant. So, you know, I try to use it, especially Twitter. I try to use Twitter. People have a cooking question. If they have a recipe question, if, you know, today someone said, I have a rust spot on my knife, how do I get rid of it? Like, so, you know, I could use social media to reach a pretty large audience in that manner. We use it a little bit to pub the restaurants or maybe a show that I'm doing or something of that nature. But I would say 80% of what I do is just me having a relationship with the people that follow me and, and trying to make cooking and or food stuff a little bit easier for them sprinkled in with some good old-fashioned Cleveland Browns arguments. What's a travel schedule for you look like, especially when, (laughs) you know, the TV show was ramped up and you have all these properties here in Cleveland, out-of-state as well. Is there a typical typical week for you? I don't think there's a quote-unquote typical schedule. It was a little bit more regulated when we were doing the Chew. You know, for those seven years, I had to be in New York three days a week, 35 weeks a year. You know, so, I mean, we filmed the show Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday for 35 weeks a year. So, you know, after we were done filming Thursday, typically, I'd, you know, I'd come home and do what I needed to do here. But this week, for instance, I got to Cleveland Saturday. I'm here till Wednesday, Thursday this week. I got a Thursday morning. I need to be back and I have to go to New York to do Good Morning America and Thursday night football for Fox. Friday, we have an event at our Atlantic City restaurant, so I'll be in Atlantic City Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday doing the events and getting menu changes done there. Then i got to go to Philadelphia for a Food Network appearance uh, the following day, and then we're opening up in Vegas, a Mabel's mid-December, so I'll go to Vegas after that, and then probably be back in Cleveland right after that. I log a lot of miles. (laughs) Um, You know, Cleveland is where I was born and raised. It's home to me whether I'm here for three weeks a month, the week a month. It's always what I consider my home. So let's talk about the term chef. There seems to be a lot of tossing of that term around amongst the people that are in that industry. Yeah. But if you go back and do a little due diligence, they haven't graduated from a culinary institute. They don't have a degree. And I've always been under the impression that it's kind of like me calling myself sergeant or lieutenant. I'm not in the military. I've done nothing to achieve those statuses. So to just toss them around seems a little bit disrespectful. Other people seem to have different opinions on that. You're a chef, obviously. And I'm just wondering what your take is on that. Well, I, I don't think you need a degree to be a chef. Um, You know, some of the greatest chefs I know didn't go to culinary school. Thomas Keller of French Laundry didn't go to culinary school. He's, you know, arguably greatest American chef or certainly one of them. I think the easiest way to answer the question and what I always try to say to people is when people say, I'm a chef, they're a chef, they're, you know, blah, 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 blah. I always say chef of what? 
if you ask yourself that question, you immediately know if that person's a chef or not. Are you chef of a TV show? Are you chef of your home kitchen? What makes you a chef? You don't have to own a restaurant to be a chef minimally be overseeing one or spend a large part of your career overseeing one. One of my dear friends who's one of the greatest chefs of our time is Jacques Pepin. You know, Jacques's no longer chef of a restaurant, but he's certainly a chef. I just don't like it when, and I shouldn't even say I don't like it. Look, at the end of the day, people are going to, you know, are you a chef? No, but I stayed at a Holiday Inn Express last night. You know, like, I mean, people are going to call themselves what they want to call themselves. The proof is in the pudding. But I do think to be called a chef, you should have a restaurant, be overseeing a restaurant, or leading people. You know, a chef is basically, you know, the chief, the coach. In order to be the chief or the coach, you need to be overseeing people that are cooking the food or cooking the food yourself. So I think when you say, when someone says they're a chef, if you say chef of what, and that person can't answer the question, they're probably not a chef. Let's take a look back at your Cleveland born and bred and i'm wondering as you look back on your childhood did you have a lot of barbecue experiences or were they more grilling it was actually a little bit of both i come from a very food driven family i mean my mother is greek and sicilian i mean you want to talk about great cooks she's about as good as it gets when we opened angeline in, in atlantic city our sicilian restaurant the first night it was open i went out to my parents table and my mom wasn't there i'm like dad where's mom he's like i i don't know i go back into the kitchen she's four foot ten on a good day in high heels and a dress and she's teaching the cooks how to make arancini the right way my dad's side of the family is eastern european so we always smoked and grilled and cooked over live fire my grandfather who's a hundred now still lives on his own good eastern euro blood he would smoke hams and ribs and make bacon and you know so it was always really part of my heritage growing up and when we did mabel's that's why i really for me it was important to connect that eastern european heritage which really what they've been doing throughout eastern europe for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years we would consider barbecue in america they're buying cuts of meat whether they're inexpensive or expensive they're smoking them with all the different hams and sausages and being a cleveland boy i needed to connect eastern european smoking to what we consider barbecue in america and and that's kind of where we started with mabel's and why we thought that it really was a cleveland style barbecue because it was a city that was been so inspired by eastern europe and when you go to the west side market you smell all the smoked meats right when you walk in it's the first thing that hits you in the face most people would never say oh that i'm going to get some barbecue but really what they're doing is barbecue so you open lola's first and then there are other restaurants to follow. When did Mabel's get on the radar of something that you wanted to start putting together? God, very early on. You know, we opened Mabel's um, in 1997. It'll be 22 years in, or Lola, in 1997, it'll be 22 years in March. I would say 15 to 17 years ago, I started talking to Doug and Liz about, I I really want to do a barbecue restaurant. Like, that's what I want to do. And I couldn't convince them of it. <laughs> it took me it took me like 13 years to convince them. Mabel's opens April 2016. Not necessarily like an easy venture to, to get from a build-out standpoint and get open. Uh, I remember seeing paper on the front walls out years. there thinking, is it going to be this week? Is it going to be this week? And it was still not now, not yeah. now. What were the hurdles that you were running into to finally get those doors open? Uh, there were a lot, <laughs> a lot of them. Um, I mean, one, the permitting to get it to cooking with live fires always twice as difficult than regular. You know, we went significantly over budget. Mabel sits on a 2,400 square foot 
space. So as we start to build out, and you know, build outs of restaurants like this, you know, they're anywhere between three and five million dollars to build a restaurant like this. So as we started building it, and we realized how much it was going to cost, we're like, boy, we got to figure out how to get more seats in this place. So then, you know, we build mezzanines and black steel and all the stuff that goes into that, and more permits, and then it's like, oh my god, we don't have room for the pits. So now we had to create a whole nother level to put the pits on that obviously they're very heavy they need to be enforced like it's just one thing after the other after the other so it you know it was a two-year build out and something that we thought we would when we bought the space we thought we could have it open in five months and two years later we finally opened so but that's the restaurant business I, i think that's what a lot of people at home sometimes fail to realize that and this isn't us this is restaurants across the city or country whatever restaurant people are insane because you're opening a project that's going to cost you, I don't know, let's just, I mean, even a tiny little burger joint like B-Spot costs a million dollars. So you're going to open something that's going to cost a million to $5 million to open, and then most restaurant margins are 5%. <laughs> so I'll just let everybody at home do the math there. It's, 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 a tough, it's a tough road to hoe. I mean, we love it, so we continue to do it. And I lost all my hair by, when I was 20, so I don't have to worry about losing any more of it. But, you know, it just the, the process takes a long time. What's your favorite thing on the menu here? Ah, God, it's hard. Uh, favorite thing, I love the, I do love the pigtails. My favorite thing on the menu here, I go back and forth. Even though I think the one of the easier things to smoke and that we do are ribs. Um, you know, My favorite, by the way. Yeah, I mean, I sure. think I think our ribs with the pickle glaze are incredibly unique and yep. special. I tend to always go back to those, but I'm super proud of our brisket. I love our beef rib. You know, I love the pastrami spices that weave through the beef rib because I think it has a very great Eastern Euro feel to it. But, you know, I would say that the pork ribs are, although they're one of the easier things that we do, to me, they're just really special. Do you have any inkling or any forethought at all about getting into the Barbecue Hall of Fame at some point? No, I don't think about that kind of stuff. Do you know Guy Fieri's in the Barbecue Hall of Fame? I did not, no. I don't think about that kind of stuff. I really... Do you know why he's in the Barbecue Hall of Fame? No. Okay. No. Me neither. No. (laughs) I have no idea. You want to do a lightning round? Sure. All right, here we go. We'll we'll, we'll ramp up with this. Flay or brown? Uh, Flay. Lump or briquette? Oh, lump. Reverse sear or normal sear? Oh, God, normal sear. Yes or no? Searing seals in the juices? Technically, no. Technically? Technically, no. It does not. I know. (laughs) Uh, Let it rest or let's eat? Let it rest. Pellet or offset? Offset all day. Spatchcock or beer can chicken? Ooh, that's a tough one. I'm going to go beer can. Really? Yeah, I love a beer can chicken. I just love a beer but it's, can. But it's kind of unsafe, right? I, I've never, it's you never hurt me. <laughs> you are sitting right next to me. I can't, I can't argue that. I mean, I don't want to sit on a beer can, but it makes, it makes the chicken very moist and delicious. Sweet or savory? Savory. Michael, we really appreciate the time, man. Thanks for doing this. Oh, man. Thanks for having me. You got it. There you go. 2018, a look back, a year in review at some of the best moments that myself and some of the other Inner Circle folks thought would be good to put together for you. For this New Year's Day show or New Year's Night show, so Happy New Year to you once again. Hope everybody's safe. Hope everybody's looking forward to a great 2019. We have a lot of great things in store. And by we, I mean mostly me, but we, but we. Again, don't forget to sign up for the podcast, iTunes, Android, Google platforms, all that stuff, Stitcher. 
rate and review the show if you could while you're on your platform. It helps other people find the show. Follow me socially at BBQ Central Show on both Twitter and Instagram or on Facebook. Give me a like. Slash BBQ Central Show is the place to find me there. You can also watch the live feed on Facebook and YouTube. Not sure exactly how the show will look from a video standpoint going forward. Working through some things there. Obviously, we had an issue with the camera this evening, but also trying to find out a couple of other things as well, since it was kind of a special show. In any event, Meathead will be in next week, amongst others. Once again, hope you enjoyed the look back of 2018. If you have any segments that you thought should have been included, feel free to hit me up. Greg at the BBQ Central Show.com. And maybe for this year, we'll take a running tally every quarter and we'll keep a, a better list, I guess. In any event, September 11th, 2001, I will never forget. Until next Tuesday at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, this is your program host and proud U.S. American, Greg Rempe. Good night now. We'll be right back.